It's one of the few cases in my career as a reporter that stand out. Yeah, I, you know, the the sort of cold bloodedness of it, the 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 heartbreaking phone call with his mother, the fact that they were leaving within hours. Canadian high schooler Mark Fike was shot and killed moments after hanging up with his mother at a payphone in Daytona Beach. He was preparing to head home to Ontario the next morning. Instead, he was shot and left for dead near a concrete wall next to a motel. The shooting changed the landscape of spring break in Daytona Beach forever. And that story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the shooting death of 18-year-old Mark Fike, who was killed March 15, 1996, at a payphone on Daytona's beachside. A group of misfits from Lake County had walked up to Fike while he was talking to his mother, and one of them, 17-year-old John Rainey, pulled a gun on Fike, demanding money. Fike did not give up his wallet, so Rainey shot him in the back of the head. Rainey is serving a life sentence for the killing. Since that shooting, far fewer Canadians have been making spring break trips to Daytona Beach. My special guest for this episode will be News Journal columnist Mark Lane, former News Journal reporter Joe Ditzler, Canadian journalist Rob Russo, and Daytona Beach Welcome Center manager Scott Edwards. This is very dramatic stuff, and as the uh, the narrative we got from the police accumulated more details, it just became worse with each telling. And then because it was a complex case, there were a bunch of people involved. The uh, court part of it went out over a number of years, which kept the story alive. That was longtime News Journal columnist Mark Lane describing to me how so many people were captivated by the story of a murder that took place 23 years ago on Daytona's beachside, one that devastated an entire city in Ontario, Canada, and permanently damaged Daytona's reputation in that part of the world. Mark Fike had just told his mother he would board a bus the next morning and begin the long trip home from Daytona Beach to Belleville, Ontario a lakeside town about 90 miles northeast of Toronto. Seconds after hanging up that payphone near the Thunderbird Motel on Oak Ridge Boulevard, the 18-year-old Fike was shot in the back of the head. He died in the arms of his best friend. That shooting took place March 15, 1996, during Canadian spring break. It changed how Daytona Beach was seen as a vacation destination. It was viewed, particularly by Canadians, as a very dangerous place. The news of Fike's murder engulfed the small community of Belleville. Fike was an athlete. He played hockey and baseball, and he had dreams of attending college, graduating, and then entering the field of law and security. His parents were divorced, but both his mother and father were fiercely devoted to their son. 
Fike's mother, Christine, told a Canadian journalist soon after the shooting that her son had been born three months prematurely. He had to fight to stay alive in this world. And then all of a sudden, some stranger with a gun took him out in an instant. She didn't want him to go to Daytona Beach for spring break, but her son was about to turn 19 years old. She decided it wasn't worth trying to convince him to stay home. Besides, he was going to be with 40 of his classmates. They were students at a Catholic high school. They made good choices. Mark, his mother said, had never even been in a fight. He was an altar boy. He was a good kid. A somber Christine Fike gave the media a refrain that so many parents of murdered children give. She told the reporter interviewing her the day after her son died, quote, You read about this kind of stuff in the newspapers, but you never think it's going to happen to you. Mark Fike also left behind a brother and a sister. His younger brother idolized Mark. His younger sister considered him her best friend. Joe Ditzler was a reporter for the News Journal and covered the trial of the shooter, John Rainey, and covered the sentencing hearings of his accomplices. One of his assignments during the pretrial phase of the case was to travel to Fike's hometown and interview people there. Ditzler, who was now an editor with Stars and Stripes, described to me what he observed during that trip. It was, it was heartbreaking, really, to go there. And I remember I dressed in my best suit that I rarely wore anywhere. And I was sweating, not from the not from the climate, just from the situation. But uh, Mrs. Fike really put me at ease and answered all my questions, showed me around. I sat in the living room and, and talked to them, her and uh, Mark's sister. And it was close. I remember, if not, it was pretty close to Easter, which struck me as you know, kind of uh, if not symbolic, then you know, metaphorical. And I went to church that that Sunday, and of course. She was there, and uh, it was very, it was a touching, inspiring moment, but uh, at the time, it was it was tough going into it, but it was a lot easier than I thought it would, would be from a journalistic standpoint. Ditzler wasn't the only one from Daytona Beach who traveled to Belleville to see firsthand the grief felt by those who knew and loved Mark Fike. More on that later. Spring break in Daytona Beach has a colorful history. People all over know the stories about American Spring Break and how it peaked in the late 1990s. Generations ago, most Spring Breakers headed to Fort Lauderdale. But over time, Daytona started attracting more people. There was an ongoing rivalry between the two cities for a time. Eventually, elected officials in Fort Lauderdale got fed up with Spring Breakers, so they implemented a crackdown. By then... Daytona was nearly becoming as big a spring break destination as Fort Lauderdale. So once South Florida stopped being a choice for college students, they all started converging on Daytona. It was total decadence. Alcohol flowed. MTV hosted parties. The city lacked the infrastructure to handle it all. Scott Edwards is the manager of the Daytona Beach Welcome Center, a position he's held since 1994. Before that, he worked in the hotel business. He was at Ground Zero during the heyday of Spring Break Daytona. Today, Spring Break is still his specialty. 
He books hotel rooms for people visiting the area. So the period from Speed Weeks, which is what we call the weeks leading up to the mother of all NASCAR races, the Daytona 500, to the end of Bike Week, is a busy season for Edwards. Spring Break is wedged in that time period. And here he is talking to me about what Spring Break was like during the 1980s. In the real thick of it, in 89, it was just completely out of control. Uh, we had too many people and um, just uh, not enough accommodations. We had people sleeping in front yards of people's homes uh, on the beach side, you know, uninvited, of course, but there was just no place for them to stay. And I remember the news journal showing pictures from the air that traffic was backed up from the airport all the way to A1A, and at some points not moving at all, people just getting out of their cars and laying on the hoods of their cars because there was just too many cars and not enough uh, roadway. The town was in gridlock. So spring break Daytona began tapering off by the early 1990s. By then, Panama City Beach was a fledgling hotspot. Daytona officials had had enough of seeing their city being turned into a trash bin. Residents here had lost all patience with rowdy college kids, and MTV had decided to go west. Here again is Mark Lane. A lot of it was just that the market had fragmented. Uh, MTV was going all different places each year, and uh, Panama City was growing as a uh, as a vacation spot for spring break. People were even going out of the country to Cancun. So uh, the market the market fragmented, and it became a more manageable event uh, by the end of the nineties. And I don't think anyone. Uh, really misses uh, the uh, the high tide of spring break uh, in Daytona. Spring break has never gone away here. In fact, it has undergone a bit of a resurgence after Panama City inevitably got tired of the annual dose of wanton crowds. But once upon a time, Canadians had their own spring break in Daytona. Their spring break, traditionally, comes earlier than their American counterparts. And for years, Daytona was a favorite destination for them. In 1996, Daytona was a very popular spot for Canadians. And their spring break was far more manageable. Uh, back in 96, of course, we were past the heydays of the late 80s and early 90s. And, uh, but it was, still, it was still pretty strong. Uh, there was a, a heavy Canadian spring break presence in late February every year that was still strong. Plus, uh, in March, when uh, the Canadian high school breaks were out, uh, there were quite a few Canadian high school kids that would come down here and mingle with the American college students during that time period. Mark Fike was among those throngs of Canadian spring breakers spending a week in Daytona in March 1996. He stayed at the Thunderbird on Daytona's beachside, located by the beach approach at Oak Ridge Boulevard and State Road A1A. Mark did not do much sightseeing during his trip. Mother Nature wasn't all that cooperative, so he mostly stayed in the vicinity of the motel. He spent a lot of time at the pool. When he was talking to his mother on the phone the night of March 15th, he told her he was looking forward to being home. He had a hockey game to play. 
there were two payphones side by side on a concrete wall near the beach approach. It was within walking distance of the motel. That's where Mark and his best friend, Che Guerrera, were standing. It was about 20 minutes to midnight when Mark was talking to his mother. He was shot just after he had hung up, around 11.42 p.m. Christine Fike told the Sun reporter that she had heard some commotion in the background during the phone conversation with her son, and then she heard her son say, I've got to get going now, Mom. I'll see you later. Witnesses told police that a group of teens had tried to rob Mark. They wanted the boy's wallet. The shooter was described as a stocky white youth, 14 to 16 years old, about 5 feet 9 inches tall with sandy blonde hair. One witness, who was a college freshman at Middle Tennessee State University, said she and her friends were heading toward the beach late at night when they heard gunfire. She said they saw up to seven males run past her into the motel. She and her friends ran to the area where the sounds came from and saw Che Guerrera holding his friend, who was bleeding. Guerrera had his shirt pressed against the back of his friend's head, and he was screaming for help. The gun had been dropped at the scene. It was lying by Mark's feet. The reaction in Canada to the news of the murder was a strong one. Rob Russo is the Ottawa Bureau Chief of the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. In 1996, he was writing for the Canadian press and working in Washington, D.C. He covered the trial of the man convicted of shooting and killing Mark Fike. Here he is talking to me about why this story reverberated across Canada. There are a couple of things that make this something that connects with everybody in Canada. Number one, we all escape. We all try to escape. But I think the most uh, the most salient feature of this is the story of a boy talking to his mother who was uh, who knew that he faced peril uh, and couldn't tell his mother and had to hang up on his mother as uh, as he was just seconds away from being shot. So uh, it connects with people because of because of that escape. Uh, and, and because of the illusory nature sometimes of, of, of uh, winter escapes. But really, it connects with people because of this story of, of, of a boy uh, talking to his mother uh, in the final seconds of his life and uh, his mother being really unable to know what was about to happen to her son. Here is the second paragraph of the story published in the Toronto Star about the shooting. Mark Fike would not be coming home alive from his spring break vacation in Daytona Beach. The funny, easygoing 18-year-old had been killed by punks looking for change. The price of a life on the heartless streets of the USA. Mark's father, predictably, took the news of his son's death particularly hard. This is what Bill Fike told the Toronto Sun reporter. He said, quote, he was tall, dark and handsome, all gung-ho for his first big trip, and he shot in the head by scum. The person who did this doesn't belong in this world. They think it's easy to put a Canadian in a box, but not this time. Not this time. 
Joe Ditzler flew to Canada to speak to Mark Fike's family, friends, and neighbors. The issue of gun violence in the U.S. was definitely on the minds of many, and it was on Joe's mind. I visited Belleville and talked to some folks there in town at the school, police chief, the family, and, you know, it was kind of shock and utter disbelief and a resentment towards the lax attitude towards gun regulation. And I say that without trying to be editorializing, but from their point of view, it was just a culture of washing guns that, that led to that. And that was, a, that was a theme throughout, I believe, in, in the CBC coverage. I did talk to one reporter who called me. This apparently was a nationwide story at the time. I wasn't really in a situation where I could comment on the state of regulation of firearms, but I, that was a that was a concern, you know, that led them to believe that it was more likely than not that something like that would happen in our country as opposed to Canada, where you know it was a much lower probability. Canadians are known for their politeness, but Joe Ditzler was still somewhat surprised to see how welcoming the residents were up there. After all, he was there to report on a tragedy. He was there to ask sensitive questions and to interview emotional people. It was a, a sensitive situation, and I, I wanted to be prepared and respectful and yet try and uncover something about the attitudes towards American culture and uh, its propensity to you know, more permissive towards firearms as well as the, the violent. I think there was an underpinning that even whether or not a firearm was involved, that the, the, the crime aspect of it, the violence of it, was more was something that was associated with American culture as opposed to Canadian culture. I just wanted to explore that a little bit. And, you know, you talked about resentment, whether that was something that was inflamed by this incident. But, uh, you know, what I found uh, uniformly were folks were very welcoming. Uh, they're, they're very cooperative and made me, you know, I had no trouble knocking on doors. It was the first robbery-related tourist slaying in Daytona Beach, according to police. To them, it was an anomaly. To the countless Canadians appalled at the news of Fike's senseless murder, it was a sign of the times and a harrowing example of the kind of violence regularly reported across Florida and the United States. There were many examples of these kinds of crimes against tourists occurring elsewhere in Florida, namely Miami and Orlando. It wasn't supposed to happen in Daytona. The slaying of Mark Fike was the second random killing of a foreign visitor in Florida in less than a month. Not only that, but there were 11 tourists killed during a 13-month period in Florida during the early 1990s. Here again is Mark Lane. This scared a lot of people because it happened at the same time, too, that there were some very highly publicized uh, killings in South Florida of tourists, uh, particularly uh, in 93, there was this uh, rash of, uh, of, of shootings in South Florida uh, of European tourists, which... The whole state felt reverberations from for the next several years. So I, this 96 shooting kind of reinforced the idea that Florida is a dangerous place to go. It was an eye-opening story for a lot of people. 
Rob Russo told me that Canadians had a romantic image of Florida as a tropical paradise. Perhaps they didn't factor in that many people there, just like anywhere, live difficult lives, and that can spawn ugly behavior. Here is Russo talking to me about that. To be perfectly honest with you, I think another reason why this, this story hit home is, is because uh, it, it, it is the vast majority of Canadians' experience uh, that that isn't um, Florida, that Florida really is this sun-drenched uh, uh, land of, of beaches uh, and, and uh, easy life uh, and palm trees uh, and warm weather. Uh, and, and I and I think the um, uh, what what might have surprised Canadians about about this story as well is is that there is another uh, side to life in Florida that Florida isn't all the prosperity of Palm Beach or, or the prosperity of, of uh, for people who live along the beaches that there is another side to life in Florida it's, it's it can be hard scrabble. It can be tougher, uh, and, and people have have much more much more meager circumstances uh, in, in some parts of Florida. Uh, and and I think that that if you were to look at the life of the person uh, convicted of, of, of killing Mark Fike, he came from that side of Florida, a side of Florida that most Canadians just aren't familiar with. The shooting of Mark Fike put Daytona squarely in an unflattering category of dangerous spots for international visitors. News agencies across Canada and the United Kingdom reached out to local police and beach safety officials seeking interviews. The chief of Volusia County Beach Safety, which back then was called the Volusia County Beach Department, was invited to speak on NBC's Today Show. The Sunday after the shooting was a busy one for Scott Edwards. Here he is describing what he went through. I think initially it was just a total shock that this had happened. Uh when I got the news that morning. And then uh, somehow my name got floated out as somebody to talk to, and uh, I was getting calls from several news outlets. And they wanted to talk to somebody, and being that it was on a Sunday, you know, City Hall was closed, the chamber was closed, and I was the closest thing they had to anybody that could uh, speak about spring break or possibly, you know, what was going to happen. And so I was kind of thrown into the center of the whole thing, and I remember uh, by 3 o'clock that afternoon, an ABC correspondent was here and uh, interviewed me on the beach about what had happened. The crucible was about to get much hotter for Scott Edwards. Someone from Daytona Beach was going to have to go to Canada. Officials from the Halifax Area Advertising Authority felt an obligation to send someone to Belleville to speak at Mark Fike's funeral, meet his parents, and offer condolences. That responsibility fell on Edwards. There was a, uh, a hob board meeting early that week. I attended that. I was not on the hob board. And uh, it had been brought up that they thought it would be in the best interest for public relations to send somebody up there to speak at the funeral. There weren't any volunteers. And they looked at me and said, well, you know, you're the guy that's associated with spring break. You should probably go. Those close to Edwards were worried about him. They were afraid he would be entering a hostile place. Edwards thought that, too. I was a little bit apprehensive in that uh, the, the student who was killed, 
his parents were divorced and the father had made a statement and I, I'm not sure exactly what it was but it was in the paper something to the effect that I hope America doesn't think they're going to get away with just sending another Canadian back in a box that was almost exactly what Mark Fike's father had said to the Toronto Star Edwards had little time to prepare for what he was about to face he and a colleague of his worked on a speech the Daytona Beach Area Convention and Visitors Bureau, known as the CVB, set up his hotel and travel accommodations. Edwards used the time on the flight to Toronto, as well as the long drive to Belleville from the airport, to mentally prepare for what was coming. As I recall, the funeral was on that following Saturday, and the, uh, the CVB made flight arrangements for me to fly into Toronto uh, on Friday. And I got to, to the hotel on Friday evening, and then on Saturday morning, <clears throat> I had a rental car, and I drove about 150 miles to this small town. I realized on the drive over there that this was a, a hot subject in Canada, as the news on the radio was talking almost exclusively about the upcoming funeral that day for Mark Fike, and that there'd be members of the Canadian Parliament there, and uh, what a tragedy this was. So uh, I had about a two-hour prep time in the car, knowing that I was walking into a potential beehive. He arrived at the cathedral about an hour before the services began. That's when he got a sense of the scale of the funeral. It seemed like everyone in town was going to be there. And when I got there, uh, I noticed that uh, there was people putting up sound equipment outside the church where the uh, service was being held, uh, because although it was a big, older Catholic cathedral that was like right across the street from the Catholic school that the, the student went to, they were expecting such a big crowd that not everybody could get in, so they were going to broadcast the uh, service out on the street. Not long after he entered the church, Edwards was introduced to someone he needed to meet. So I walked into uh, the church, and there were people scurrying around making, you know, arrangements to get everything set up. And I went up to a woman, and I told her that um, who I was, and I was from Daytona Beach. And she said, uh, oh, hold on, don't just stand here, I'm going to get you somebody. And she went over to another part of the church and brought a gentleman over to me and he uh, introduced himself as the uh, police chief of the city and he told me that uh, I was not to leave his side through the entire uh, service and the afterwards and everything because there were some people that were very upset and they didn't need another tragedy to happen with me being there so uh, needless to say <laughs> It, uh, it put me on notice that this, this could be problematic. Scott Edwards sat close to the front row. He was going to be one of the last to walk to the altar and address the congregation. The speakers before Edwards all knew Mark Fike. And they tried to fight through the grief. Not all of them could. I was sitting up in the uh, first two or three rows with the police chief. It was a closed casket ceremony. They had the casket, you know, and in the aisle close to the altar and uh, there was a lot of sad people there and the uh, the priest performed the service and then uh, after that he said we have some people 
that are going to say a few words. And they brought up uh, Mark Fike's best friend with one of uh, the high school teachers. And the, the friend started to speak about Mark Fike, but he broke down into tears. And the, uh, the teacher had to uh, kind of take the ball from there and finish up everything. And then, uh, as I recall, Mark's aunt got up and spoke and talked about, you know, what a great kid he was and everything. And then she said that uh, it's just a sad day. This is typical in America where people have guns and can get shot on the street. And it's now taken one of ours. That's what Scott Edwards had to follow. Before he spoke, he was introduced to the congregation. He still remembers the expressions on the faces looking up at him. After she got done, then the priest said, uh, well, now we have somebody from Daytona Beach that would like to speak to you. So then I had to get up there and, you know, uh, overlook that crowd, and there was anger in faces, and there was tears in faces, and uh, it was a tough room to work, to say the least. But I had, a, I had worked on uh, what I had to say to them. And I, I, I don't remember a whole lot of it anymore. I do remember I, my opening line was something like that, uh, you know, I'm from Daytona and I've traveled extensively in my life, but today is the longest journey of all. And then I just talked about, you know, although Mark was gone and what a wonderful person he was, he still lives in the minds and hearts of everybody here. And it was probably about a five-minute uh, presentation. And uh, when I finished, to my astonishment, they broke out into applause, which kind of eased my mind a little bit. Scott Edwards' day was not over. He was going to have to meet Mark Fike's parents. And then uh, when the church service was over, the immediate family was going to the gravesite. And then I sat with the chief for about 45 minutes, and then he said, well, they're going to have about 600 people of family and close friends at a recreation hall, and I'm going to take you there where you can meet his parents. I said, okay. So uh, we drove to the recreation hall, and there was five or 600 people there. And he took me over to Mrs. Fike, and, uh, of course, she was in tears, but... Uh, she was thankful for the kind words I said about her son, and I had a nice five-minute visit with her. And then the chief said, you know, they're divorced, so we're going to go over the other side of the hall, and you're going to meet the father. Well, that was who I was really apprehensive about after the statements he had made in the paper. And so I went over with the chief to a table, and the father was there with uncles and immediate family on his side. And uh, the man got up, and uh, I didn't know what to expect, and he walked toward me and uh, got very close to me, and then all of a sudden he just hugged me. And he, uh, he broke down, and he told me those were some of the nicest words anybody had ever said about his son. And he was very appreciative of it. It was an unforgettable trip for Scott Edwards. He received a police escort from the church to the county line. That's where the police cars fanned off, and he kept driving to Toronto. He spent one more night in Canada, and then flew home the next morning. By 2 p.m. Sunday, he was back in his office in Daytona, 
preparing for the next wave of spring break students coming in that week. Coming up, I'll discuss the arrests of John Rainey and his accomplices, and you'll hear more from Rob Russo and Joe Ditzler, who covered Rainey's trial. What I found interesting was that it was very clear uh, among those in the criminal justice system in Florida that they also realized that this could have an impact on uh, on Canadians who are a great source of revenue uh, for, for the people of Florida. Uh, and they uh, were intent uh, on making sure that Canadians realized that there, this this crime, if he was convicted, was going to be a crime that was going to be punished and punished severely. Um, there was a, uh, clearly a sense that uh, that a signal needed to be sent, and a signal needed to be sent uh, because of, because of, of, of the uh, the nature of of, uh, of, uh, of Canadians coming down there and spending a lot of money down there. Nobody wanted to see tourism tempered because of what John Rainey had done. That was Rob Russo summing up the mindset of authorities in Volusia County. They assumed the task of making sure that people in Canada knew what American justice looked like, particularly those who commit murder. The defendant in this case was 17-year-old John Rainey. He wasn't the only one arrested in connection with the shooting of Mark Fike. The first arrest of a suspect took place just a few days after the killing. 18-year-old Donald Shoup was booked at the jail on first-degree murder and armed robbery charges. Detectives said Shoup admitted to murdering the victim. Police told the media the day after Shoup's arrest that up to six others were wanted on similar charges. In April, Rainey was arrested. The Umatilla teen had been behind bars for two weeks prior to his arrest on an unrelated charge. News reports at the time said four independent witnesses identified Rainey as the one who fired a single shot into Mark Fike's head. John Holland, who worked alongside Joe Ditzler covering criminal court in Volusia County for the News Journal, wrote a story in the paper a couple days after Rainey's arrest stating that Rainey had actually escaped from a Department of Juvenile Justice facility 12 days before he had shot Fike. He was supposed to have been behind bars on March 15th. Instead, he was roaming the streets. Rainey's own mother told reporters after her son's first court appearance that her son had not been held in a secure prison when he escaped. She told reporters he should have been. Days after Rainey's arrest, he was indicted in Fike's murder. So was Shoup even though doubts had started to form about whether he had any role whatsoever in the shooting. Two more youths also were indicted, 15-year-olds Scott Malone, also of Umatilla, and William Schmidt of Astor. Rainey, Malone, and Schmidt were all from Lake County, located west of Daytona. Shoup was from Ormond Beach, the city to the north of Daytona. Detectives learned that the 38 caliber firearm Rainey used in the killing was stolen by Malone, who took the gun from his father without permission. Authorities said Malone, Rainey, and Schmidt rode to Daytona the day of the shooting and spotted Mark Fike and Che Guerrera. 
they attempted to rob Mark at one of the payphones. When the victim said he didn't have any money, Rainey shot him once in the head. That prompted all of the teens to run away. Rainey dropped the gun at the scene. Guerrera told the grand jury that he saw Shoup with the group of perpetrators. Shoup wasn't the shooter, but he was there. That's what Guerrera said. As it turned out, he wasn't actually there. Eventually, Rainey came forward and told authorities that Shoup was not with him and his accomplices. Shoup's attorneys also had alibi witnesses that placed him more than 10 miles from the scene of the murder. Furthermore, Shoup had a low IQ. It became clear that he had not given reliable statements to detectives during his interview. The one who brought many of these details to light was Ditzler's colleague at the News Journal, John Holland. There was some question about his intelligence and whether he was capable of forming the intent or carrying out the act. But uh, it was another reporter based on a tip that he'd gotten from inside the judicial system that led to our stories that uh, contributed to Shoup being exonerated. Uh, I think eventually Shoup would have been exonerated by the system, but it was John's stories that exposed the fact that he was even though he'd come forward and confessed this thing, that it was just utterly, you know, implausible that he would have committed that crime. Four months after his arrest, Shoup was cleared in Mark Fike's murder. Meanwhile, Malone and Schmidt were released on bail. Joe Ditzler remembered Malone specifically. He was the one who took his father's gun, which wound up in Rainey's hand. He could have stopped it, but didn't. However... He was by no stretch the instigator. He was genuinely sorry that it seemed like, you know, I mean, everybody in court is sorry for what they did and everything. But it's it was a again, it was a very this whole case was surrounded by a lot of anger and deep seated emotion and larger themes around it. But this one, you know, this was one of those deals where you just kind of felt like th there was some real contrition you know, happening. There's also this whole socioeconomic thing going on, right? Like these kids were not in the honor society or anything, but this kid was more, was, was more, was from a more, quote, respectable, quote, background than, than maybe his cohorts there. I, got, I kind of got the sense that that was the case as well. Rainey remained jailed until his trial. The wait for that trial lasted for more than two years. Malone and Schmidt entered pleas and avoided trial. They both entered those pleas in December 1997. Prosecutors can now focus solely on the accused shooter, John Rainey. And his trial began July 8, 1998. Rob Russo covered it from start to finish. When I try to cover a, a, any kind of story like this, um, if you want to lift it above the mundane, you got you got to tell uh, you got to tell people uh, the, the story about the people involved in it as human beings. And it, the challenge for I think reporters covering this story is not to make the uh, the accused the monster, uh, and and uh, and to tell also the story of of the people who uh, certainly tell the story of the victim and also of the victim's family. So the first thing that I tried to do was I try to tell John Rainey's story. Rainey, as I mentioned before, was an escapee from a halfway house. His life's trajectory was in direct contrast to Mark Fikes. 
Rainey's victim had walked a straight and narrow line. He played sports. He was popular at school and was destined for college. It seemed Rainey was destined for something much bleaker. Here again is Rob Russo describing Rainey's demeanor in court and the path he had taken to wind up there. He, he was uh, sullen. He was clearly uh, kind of overwhelmed by what has happened. He had grown up in difficult circumstances, had, um, like, like a lot of teenage boys, tried to be tough, tried to act tough, tried to look tough. Um, and it was clear uh, that, that that demeanor, that, that, that kind of uh, attempt to, to, to be a man when he was still a boy had led him down a path and led him to a moment that he almost certainly didn't intend to find himself in. And when he found himself in it, um, uh, he, he, he did something terribly wrong. Um, was he destined for that? Uh, nobody knows that for sure. Nobody, uh, nobody knows if destiny is a, re a real thing or not. But uh, a lot of where he was, a lot of where he came from, uh, put him in that situation. And once he got there, he made a terrible choice. Those who testified included witnesses who saw the shooting. That included Che Guerrera, as well as Rainey's accomplice, Scott Malone. Jurors heard Malone say that he and seven other young men, mostly high school students from Umatilla, approached a pair of payphones outside the Thunderbird Motel. They outnumbered the two strangers who were there using the phones, Guerrera and Fike. After Guerrera hung up his phone, one of the teens in the group of seven, the one who drove everyone to the beach, walked toward the empty phone to call his mother. He was past his curfew. It was at that moment that Rainey grabbed the gun, walked up behind Mark Fike and put the barrel into his back. Mark ignored the first command to hand over his wallet. That was when Rainey cocked the hammer and put it in the back of Mark's head. Right up to that moment, Mark Fike was still on the phone with his mom. Mark turned to his right. Rainey pulled the trigger, shooting Mark in the back of the head. Some of these details had never been disclosed prior to the trial. They were being heard for the first time. Prosecutors said Rainey had actually bragged about killing his victim when he talked about it later with fellow inmates. Several of Rainey's friends testified against him. They were the same friends who had accompanied him that night. They heard him say before the shooting that he had intended to rob someone. One of them heard him say that he was ready to, quote, hit a lick. That's slang for robbing a victim. One witness said he was so distraught at what he had seen Rainey do that he put his head outside the car window during the ride home so he could vomit. The defense, meanwhile, tried to lay the blame on Shoop, the original suspect who was cleared by authorities. It didn't work. The trial was over in a week. Rainey was found guilty of first-degree murder. He stood expressionless, his hands in his pockets, as the court clerk read the guilty verdict. After the verdict, Christine Fike, with her ex-husband standing near her, read a statement thanking police and prosecutors for their effort. She said she and her family's lives were forever changed. She mentioned that Mark's younger siblings suffered a great deal of pain and anguish over his death. 
prosecutors sought the death penalty for Rainey. Juvenile offenders in the U.S. are no longer eligible for the death penalty, but they were in 1998. There is no death penalty in Canada, so the penalty phase was of great interest to those Canadians following the case. Their opinions, to the surprise of some, were not all that overwhelmingly in favor of life over death. Here again is Joe Ditzler. He escaped the death penalty because his mother and Mark Fike's mother had a sort of tete-a-tete in which, you know, they commiserated to some degree with one another and agreed that further blood debt was not necessary and that, you know, a life sentence was probably the, the, uh, the better outcome. Mark Lane told me that piece of news coming out of the trial was something that generated a lot of attention. It's a more liberal. It's a more liberal country with uh, an arguably more enlightened uh, uh, system, and the mom was uh, a very uh, front and center person in the uh, during the trials, and was not insisting on a death penalty. This made this made an impression around the state too. Christine Fike may have preferred life in prison, but that's not what Bill Fike wanted. He addressed the judge at Rainey's sentencing hearing. The judge in the case could have sentenced Rainey to death, even though the jury didn't recommend it, and in spite of what the victim's mother and defendant's mother had agreed to. Bill Fike told the judge, quote, John Rainey should be executed. There are many excuses, but none give him the right to kill. Rob Russo said he still remembers the moment in the trial that likely clinched the defendant's fate. It crystallized for jurors that Mark Fike was killed over nothing of value. Do you know what uh, I think had had the biggest impact on the jury, and it certainly seemed to have the biggest impact on me, uh, was was when uh, the, the prosecutor laid out the very modest and meager belongings that Mark had in his pocket. The wallet, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the, the notion of how little money was in there. He laid them all out on, on, the, uh, on the top of the bar uh, of the jury box. Uh, and uh, he said, this was what Mark Fike was killed for, for these things. This, this is what uh, a life was worth in, in the eyes of, of, of John Rainey. Uh, and that had, it seemed, a palpable impact on the jury. It certainly had an impact on me. It, the, the, the entire senselessness of killing somebody for somebody for something like that uh, was really brought home in that moment. Joe Ditzler, who agreed to speak to me via Skype from Tokyo, Japan, where he now works and lives, discussed with me everything that caused this case to stick with him after all these years. It's one of the few cases in my career as a reporter that stand out. Yeah, I, you know, the, the sort of cold-bloodedness of it, the, the, the heartbreaking phone call with his mother, the fact that they were leaving within hours, a payphone, right? Who, who makes a call on a payphone anymore? If, if we'd been five or six years advanced, this never would have happened, right? So... It is. It sticks with you. And I, I do recall when I was in Belleville, I went out to his grave and, and hadn't even had a headstone erected yet. So, you know, it's 
it's Belleville. It's the spring thaw in Canada, so it's still kind of gray. And it's just, it hang, that whole atmosphere kind of hangs with me, the heartbreak, disappointment, uh, and resentment that that community uh, harbored. But yet something good came out of it because they, I think if I recall correctly, his sister started a, you know, a blue ribbon movement to do an to do a good deed every day sort of thing and so they still remember that and I, I checked online the other day they they have a, sort of a quasi organization that still exists around that idea so some good came out of it even though it was probably one of the worst things that could happen to a small town the case was a standout for Rob Russo as well a man who has covered one government scandal after another he was in the middle of covering one last week when he called me but the tragic killing of a promising young man 23 years ago remains something from which he learned one valuable lesson, one that he has never forgotten throughout his career. It came from an encounter in the courtroom, one that could have easily resulted in a very uncomfortable confrontation. Here is Rob Russo describing it. It led to a very, very awkward uh, uh, situation that, that turned out uh, in, in a way that I didn't expect. Uh, I went up to a man who was I, uh, sitting near Rainey's family, and I assumed he was uh, Rainey's father. And so I went up to him and I introduced myself and I said, are, are you John Rainey's father? And it turned out to be Mark Fike's father. Uh, and he looked stricken when I asked him the question uh, and he explained who he was. And of course, I felt awful. Uh, and I sought him out afterwards, and I began to talk to him. And uh, he invited me later on that day to come to the motel where he was staying. And I got to know him exceedingly well and developed a relationship with him that went on for years. Uh, and it really affected me and affected uh, uh, the way I, I do journalism. He remained in contact with Bill Fike for several years after the trial. I, I just lost track of him a couple of years ago, to tell you the truth. But I do keep a picture of, of Bill Fike. Um, I, I keep a picture of him and me after the trial together um, uh, with, with, uh, with his, his partner at the time. He he'd separated from Mark's mother and was with somebody else. And I keep a picture of, of him uh, and me on the desk to remind me that every story has human beings and humanity in it. Uh, and he was that human being. He let me know that things that I was going to write, uh, was going, uh, they were going to have an impact beyond an audience that I might have considered. Um, and, and I was so grateful for him for his perspective uh, and and for what it did to, to uh, temper, change, inform, infuse, add texture to the stories that I wrote. He uses that photo of him and Bill Fike to remind himself and other journalists of the sometimes delicate touch that is required for the job. It, it, it was one of those things that did affect me for the rest of my career, as I said. I, I took away from that, um, uh, particularly in the coverage of, of, of criminal justice, or uh, all justice, the, the need to remember that there are real human beings. 
And I, you know, I'm a political reporter now, um, and I keep that picture there to remind people uh, in my office and to remind to remind me as well that even when we're talking about uh, government policy, that we have to remember that uh, that nothing really matters except the way it affects human beings, and we've got to tell that story. We've got to tell. Uh, uh, people exactly the way everything we do affects them and their lives. Uh, and and uh, I, again, I, I'm grateful to Bill Fike for, for that. A law in Florida now calls for juvenile offenders serving life sentences to get new sentencing hearings. Rainey had his new hearing late last year. The judge in that case ruled in favor of the state. Rainey remains behind bars serving a life sentence. He is being housed at Lake Correctional Institution in Claremont, not far from where he had been living when he was last free. William Schmidt served five years in prison. He was released from state custody in September 2003. His last known address was in Daytona Beach. Scott Malone served six years in prison. He was released in November 2004. His last known address was in Umatilla, where he was originally from. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, the murder of Mark Fike had a lasting impact on spring break in Daytona Beach. Here again is Mark Lane. There was a lot of concern generally about how this would affect not just spring break, but tourism in general. There was this narrative out there that uh, Florida was was a dangerous place, and this certainly uh, reinforced that. Canadian spring break was always a kinder, gentler spring break and always welcomed by local residents. They were the ones, Canadians that is, who helped keep things going for beachside businesses at a time when people often stayed away from the sand and the ocean. At least that's how it was before the death of Mark Fike. Here again is Scott Edwards. That pretty much really ended Canadian spring break. Daytona was not the spot to come to. The, the big Canadian tour operators backed away from it. Uh, they just they just didn't come to Daytona. So it, it shut off Canadian break like a faucet. What it did to American break is hard to say in that, you know, uh, spring break was getting smaller every year after the 1989 debacle. Uh, I'm sure it didn't help things from the American standpoint, but it really had significant impact on Canadian spring break. Canadians still do come here, just not in the numbers the city was accustomed to seeing 25 years ago. Those Canadians who do come to Daytona in February and March still treat it like a tropical paradise, even though many of us who live here are simply waiting out the last phase of winter. 68-degree ocean water isn't going to keep a Canadian away from the beach, neither will clouds or wind. Canadian spring break used to be a big deal. Yeah, and you know, it still is. It takes place earlier in the year because their schools let out even earlier than American schools for the simple reason that uh, you don't have to heat the buildings uh, during during uh, a particularly cold part of the year. So uh, Canadian spring break is 
is still a thing. It just uh, not as not at, like all spring breaks, not as much of a thing. But it it does it tends to be lower key, and in such a time, such a time in winter when people aren't paying attention to the beach anyway. So uh, nobody goes to the beach in February, you know. So it's uh, so they the early. Uh, Canadian spring breakers go by unnoticed. It's it's kind of a local custom. If you see someone uh, uh, swimming in in water that's under seventy degrees, to just say, "Oh, Canadian." There are a few moments in Daytona history that people can point to and suggest things were never the same afterward. The murder of Mark Fike is one of those moments. Well, this was part of a like a final souring on on spring break. You know, we were the 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 world capital of spring break during the MTV years, and the MTV years uh, uh, stopped in '94. But we were still a pretty big uh, spring break location uh, through the uh, up until around the mid '90s. By by the t- year after this, the numbers were off, and part of it was foreign uh, students didn't want to be in here, not just here, but in, in Panama City and other parts of Florida. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time when I will discuss the cold case murder of 15-year-old Laura Lee Spear. April 26th marks the 25th anniversary of her death. The girl's body was found on the backyard patio of a burned-out, abandoned house in DeLand, a quarter mile from where the girl had vanished after getting off her school bus. Spears' murder has never been solved. I'll speak to a pair of investigators about the case. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at TonyCrimeWriter or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.